And welcome back to Regionally Speaking. He's Tom Maloney and I'm Dee Dodson. The United States has become polarized on issues surrounding gun control and the Second Amendment. For proponents of gun rights, having ready access to firearms is important for personal self-defense. Most gun control advocates voice concern over mass school shootings, irresponsible gun ownership, as well as background check loopholes. Ultimately, their goal is to reduce gun violence. In the wake of an unattended Hoosier toddler found wandering the hallways of his apartment complex toying with a loaded handgun, there has been an increase in calls for action, so we wanted to speak with a gun control advocate. Jerry King is the board president for Hoosiers Concerned About Gun Violence. Jerry retired from the Indiana Public Health Association in 2018, where he was the executive director for over 20 years. His prior experience was in hospital community relations, as well as in inner-city neighborhood leadership development and organizing. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So, Jerry, as I said in my opening, one of the reasons that we wanted to speak to you today was because of that now viral video of the Beach Grove child who was seen on ring camera footage with what turned out to be a loaded nine millimeter handgun. And for those that may not even be familiar with that area, Beach Grove, it's it's right outside of Indianapolis. Yes, that's right. The neighbor that caught the video immediately called law enforcement. And as you can imagine, I have several issues with the case itself, including the fact that the child was found unattended. The child was found with an unsecured firearm. And and also, we found out later that the father was unaware that the child was even outside of the apartment. And honestly, I don't even know where to begin with this. So should we even start with the fact that the child had access to a loaded handgun? Well, that's certainly the uh, the, the standout uh, concern. It's a, it's a huge uh, issue. Uh, I guess uh, maybe uh, we should start by uh, saying how grateful we are that uh, there were uh, neighbors uh, nearby uh, in the immediate vicinity who were paying attention and were concerned and, and even were persistent in uh, getting the police to uh, uh, to investigate further. Uh, so uh, they are uh, uh, heroes uh, in, in some respect in this story. But to get to the, the point, yes, the, uh, uh, the the just the notion uh, that a toddler or any any uh, child uh, would be able to find uh, a gun in a home, uh, a loaded gun, uh, and have access to it and play with it, uh, um, uh, it's extremely frightening, and even even more so because this this story was uh, got national news. But I I think we can believe that. Uh, Stories not so dissimilar uh, happen across the country every day. Jerry, Senate Bill 358 in this session has been proposed by Senator uh, Fatty Quidora, and yes. it talks about firearm safety, including firearm safety in the home, particularly mm-hmm. in a home with minor children, as was this apartment, uh, firearm suicide prevention, uh, doesn't necessarily uh, impact this case, but uh, including, um, you know, uh, that establishes the grant criteria, provides that a neglect of a dependent includes storing an unsecured firearm in a location to which the dependent has access unless the firearm is secured by a lock and the firearm is not loaded, which both of these, the firearm was not secured by a lock, the firearm was loaded, Um, the firearm was not put away safely. Uh, Are there any rules on the book right now in Indiana when it comes to firearm safety? I mean, I know there's open carry laws, right? I can have my my handgun on my my hip. I can have my rifle in the back of my truck. Um, I could just leave my gun out in my home with a four and a half year old legally, right? That's yes. That's that. That is correct. The uh, uh, Senator Cadora, whom we are uh, uh, so appreciative of, uh, has introduced uh, uh, secure storage bills uh, in previous years, and uh, and they have uh, just been. Um. Uh, dismissed, uh, passively dismissed uh, by uh, by committee chairman. Uh, they they just have declined to uh, hear the hear that bill uh, in previous years, and uh, and he's trying again. The senator also I, says this in public all the time, so I'll repeat it for him. Uh, the 
senator has promised that he will continue to submit uh, this bill uh, every year uh, until it passes or as long as he's in the uh, Indiana Senate. So we're we're uh, really appreciative of his uh, of his uh, uh, perseverance uh, in in this matter. But yes, your your question: uh, Are there laws that govern secure stories in Indiana? No, there are not. So I I guess I should preface this by saying I am not a gun owner. Um, but if I if I did own a gun, I I feel like it would be pretty common sense, you know, have a gun safe, keep a lock on the gun, and then keep the bullets elsewhere, not in the same yeah. safe, and probably not even in the same room, um, and definitely high up uh, away from children, and maybe behind some boxes and some clothes, so they're not going to go rummaging through, digging for it, and trying yeah. to find it. Are there any other tips in terms of? Gun safety, aside from just not owning a gun, um, that somebody listening right now, you know, might yeah. think, "Oh, wait, yeah. I've got grandkids coming over this weekend. I should, I should put the yeah. hunting rifle away." Or, you know, I've got, yeah. uh, you know, I've got my teenagers at home. I don't need to have my 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 nine millimeter sitting out. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and especially the first part of what you said, uh, I want to really endorse. There, there are um, uh, well known. Well, I shouldn't say well-known because a lot of people don't practice it, but there are, uh, uh, so, so to speak, gold standard of, of securing uh, firearms in the home, uh, uh, preferably in a, in a locked box uh, uh, and ammunition stored in a, in a different location, locked. Uh, and uh, and that's, that's, kind of the, uh, that's kind of the standard for secure storage in a home. The other part, though, that I want to say uh, is uh, uh, you're, you know, you suggested hiding the guns. Um, I think that there's no such thing uh, as hiding a gun from a child. Uh, there's there's not a child on the face of this earth that doesn't know every nook and cranny of his home. And, in fact, there have been studies uh, that uh, children uh, uh, ask to... Uh, uh, see if they can find dad's gun. Uh, and these kids uh, always find it within minutes or at, at within an hour at the very most. Uh, and parents, uh, when they've been present for those uh, for those uh, studies, are just shocked. They think, oh my goodness, I, I never thought he would ever find it there. But there's no such place that where a child, that a child doesn't know about or wouldn't think to look. And so, uh, so absolutely right. It, the, the, uh, the smart thing, of course, is to not have the gun at home uh, to begin with. That's, uh, but you know, the um, people um, who are uh, on the other side of this argument strongly insist that they have their gun at home for self-defense, uh, and uh, and if there were an intruder, uh, uh, they shouldn't be made to. You know, uh, find the key to the lockbox, get the gun. Find the key to the munitions box, get the uh, get the get the bullets, load the gun, and then protect themselves. You know, they that's kind of their reasoning uh, about that, and it's on a one by one. It it makes sense. The truth is that guns in the home are seldom used for self defense. Guns in the home are used in domestic violence. They're used for in suicide. And they're and they are the instrument of 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 uh, accidental injury, uh, and something I don't quote this number, <laughs> uh, but something like ten uh, percent of homicides in the home uh, are due to self defense, uh, whereas eighty eighty five percent of incident gun related incidents in the home. Uh, are those things that I mentioned? Suicide, domestic violence, accidental injury. My numbers are probably not probably not exactly right, but they but they're not far off, and they give the spirit of what I'm of the point I'm trying to get at. Jerry King is the board president for Hoosiers concerned about gun violence. 
So, Jerry, according to your organization's website, Hoosiers Concerned About Gun Violence, you list what is wrong with Indiana's current gun laws and included in that list what we just uh, discussed, uh, weak child access laws. But I just wanted to talk about a couple of other uh, bullet points that are on that list. Um, One that I found interesting is actually number one on the list. No required background check when purchasing a firearm from a private seller at a gun show or on the Internet. And I'm not sure if you remember our conversation that we had with you uh, back in June or July of last year, and I shared you the story that I had recently seen on social media of a, a child actor who went to a gun show and ultimately was able to walk away. Is that, uh, can I ask really quick, is mm-hmm. that what, what is known as the gun show loophole, what you've just described? I believe that is what it is. Thank you. Yeah, but, I think that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but l- let's talk about that for a moment. You know, I am, myself am not a gun owner. My husband is. I'm frightened of guns, as I've share to anybody who will listen to me but i had no clue that there is no required background check when you purchase from a private um, seller yeah well, and let's let's note uh, that that uh, uh bullet point <laughs> bullet point uh that that's uh, uh what's wrong with indiana's laws uh that list was created actually before uh the permitless carry bill passed right. in the in the last general assembly right. so uh, uh prior today now anybody can walk into a gun show or a gun store uh, and buy a gun without any kind of background check. And people can voluntarily submit uh, at, a, at a licensed dealer. They can voluntarily uh, submit a background application, but they're not required to. And, and of course, that's the, that's the issue that we, that we think is so uh, concerning. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who, uh, people who might not have passed a background check, felony record, mental health issues, domestic violence uh, 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 history, people who might not have passed such a background check in the past now uh, don't have to answer, don't have to even answer those questions. Uh, they can just say, uh, I'm, uh, I'm here to buy a gun, and they can do that. Uh, and so uh, the, the, uh, the gun sh- uh, show loophole was indeed uh, when when Indiana did require a license to carry, uh, uh, they did. There was no process for uh, to govern that or regulate that uh, at purchases at gun shows or, or, well, of course, for that matter, uh, purchases on the street, which are uh, often illegal. There's another point that you highlight in this bulleted list that I found. Um, I don't know. It was not until I actually saw this highlight that it kind of shocked me. But it is the license to carry age of 18. And the reason that this stood out to me is because I thought about someone being able to rent a car, for instance, right? The minimum age to rent a car is 25. Now, you can rent a car if you're under 25, but you would have to pay what they call, I believe it's like a younger driver fee, in addition to the daily rate fee to rent a car. And so you think about someone not being old enough to... Right. And so I'm I'm, I'm trying, I'm looking at that contrast and you think about there are regulations for car safety, Mm -hmm. the car safety industry, the car industry, but then you contrast that with gun ownership laws and regulation. And for me, it's striking. You can own a gun at 18, but you can't go into your local, can't go in and rent a car without your mom or your dad, or you pay that additional fee. So let's talk about the, the age. And and it's and you know it's uh, I think it's uh, a modest step in the right direction, but there are bills be- that have been introduced um, in the in the uh, uh, current session, um, and they would uh, there's I'm looking at uh, House Bill 1238, uh, which uh, actually pertains to assault weapons. Uh, uh, it would prohibit a licensed uh, dealer from selling a, an assault weapons to a person under the age of 21. And then I'm looking here, I'll, I'll tell you in the meantime while I'm looking for it, uh, there is a, uh, there are two bills introduced uh, that would, uh, one in the Senate and one in the House, uh, that would uh, prohibit handgun purchases uh, by people under the age of 21. Uh, so uh, whether those bills uh, uh, make their way through the, through the, uh, through the session remains to be seen, but at least there are uh, there are people in the in the general assembly uh, who see that 
that that age is one factor. You know, uh, I, I I call that a modest step. Uh, of course, uh, it's, it doesn't doesn't solve uh, our street violence uh, issues altogether, but it's but it's uh, a positive step. So let's talk about carrying on. I guess the the theme, Jerry, w- with age. Um, you know, we we often hear that eighteen year olds' brains just aren't fully developed, right? That's why they can't buy alcohol. Um, but at the same time, uh, an eighteen year old can go off to war. We saw many of them going off to war over the last several decades. Um, You know, and so I I wonder to a certain extent, uh, should there be some sort of an exemption when it comes to military experience and or police experience? Though I I believe most police officers now, you have to be older than 18 and have to have beyond just a high school degree, uh, you do have to have a a criminal justice degree at at some sort of an institution. Maybe. Um, But uh, something higher, I guess, than a, a high school degree. Um, you know, exceptions to the rule, I suppose, in yeah. terms of military yeah. experience or and or police slash first responder experience? Yeah, you know, I, you know, popular wisdom might be that, uh, that those, those uh, professions or uh, uh, populations that you're talking about, you, uh, they've had, they've had firearm training. Uh, uh, they know, more than the average citizen about firearm safety, um, and so there's some, you know, there's some good reason behind that. Uh, I don't know that we would claim that uh, people in that population that you were describing are necessarily any more um, mature or free of issues that lead to violence. You know, but that's, uh, but that's, uh, that's. I think maybe beyond the, the kind of question that you're asking, um, you know, reasonable people would think that those categories uh, are safer uh, when it comes to uh, gun ownership. Um, it's not something that I hear people talking about necessarily. Uh, so whether there's any, whether those kinds of whether those kinds of, of um, I guess, compromises or, or accommodations is a better word, whether those kinds of accommodations might become part of the discussion, I guess we'll see. Senator Lonnie Randolph up here in Northwest Indiana has introduced Senate Bill 149, talking about yeah. uh, privately made firearms, uh, which yeah. defines yeah. a privately made firearm and other related terms and makes it a level five felony to prevent to possess a privately made firearm uh, that includes um, a felony to alter, obliterate, or remove certain yeah. marks of firearm identification or to possess a firearm, which of those marks have been uh, altered, obliterated, or removed. Uh, in essence, he's talking about ghost guns, right? Or yeah, stolen right. guns that uh, people are filing yeah. Uh, yeah. the serial numbers off of. Yeah. Um, what What is the... You know, is is that a um, is that a media myth, Jerry, or is or are ghost guns a very real problem? Well, um, you know, I think there's a divided. Uh, on, I think there's an honest uh, divided opinion uh, about that. I did a little bit of research about that a few months ago when I wrote a column for uh, for my organization's newsletter, and, and it was really on this very question of proliferation of of, of guns made from kits. Um, and, um, the, you know, the concerns are, uh, those that you just listed, they make the gun harder to trace. They, they proliferate, makes it just that much easier for people, uh, to access guns. Uh, kits are, uh, are said to be very, very easy to assemble with, uh, uh, with tools that most homes have or, uh, and so, uh, 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 and so there was a oh, uh, you know, a young a young man, a teenager, decided to uh, prove the point by uh, ordering and receiving and assembling uh, a, a, a a kit a a, a ghost gun uh, just to prove that as a teen that as a as a teenager there was nothing to prohibit him from doing that. So you know, so there's those kinds of concerns, guns and in the hands of young people, uh, and just the proliferation. Um, the other side of the argument, uh, I, I don't usually quote my opposition's, uh, 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 arguments, but the other side of this was, uh, that, uh, uh, if a y- young person wants a 
once a gun, they're so available on the street that uh, they're not going to be inclined to go to the trouble of ordering one online and assembling it at home. Uh, but the uh, but law enforcement, I think, generally has been uh, very concerned that this is one more significant source of proliferation and and untraceable proliferation. And so it's so you know it's just got to uh, it just seems like it's got to be something of that would is very worrisome. And that's also the same law enforcement that we saw last year who uh, uh, directly opposed, starkly opposed the um, the permitless carry opportunities yeah, provided by right. by citizens right. um yeah that's right jerry king is the board president for hoosiers concerned about gun violence so jerry right before we came in for our interview with you i'll be honest with you i was paying attention to what's happening at the state house and i tuned in to take a look to see what was happening with senate bill 429 with which northwest indiana state senator eddie melton just introduced and at the time of this recording there was no action yet it just says that there was going to be a first reading but we didn't see it but continuing on with the 2023 indiana legislature session. What are some of the bills that your organization are paying attention to as they move through the state house? Yeah, well, we've already talked about uh, the one that's at the very top of our priority, uh, uh, Senator Cador's uh, Senate Bill 358. Uh, we'll mention uh, that um, uh, Senator Cador has also introduced Senate Bill 360, uh, which would restore uh, the requirement of permits to carry a handgun in Indiana. So we're uh, really uh, very favorable about that. Both of those two bills have other features or, or aspects of it that that we're really supportive of. But those are the those are the main things. Um, and Tom mentioned a minute ago um, uh, Senator Randolph's um, uh, bill uh, uh, 149, privately made firearms, uh, is certainly something uh, that we're interested in. I'll, uh, three, uh, just congratulations. Uh, to Senator Randolph, he also uh, has entered a Senate Bill 14, which prohibits firearms at polling places uh, near uh, where people are voting or where uh, votes are being counted. So we're very, very uh, interested in in that, uh, supportive of it. Um, the uh, you know this is one that that's really interesting. There, um, um, uh, Senator Sandlin. Uh, has uh, uh, offered Senate Bill 295, uh, which uh, pertains to red flag laws or extreme risk protective orders. Uh, there were uh, concerns after last year's sessions. Uh, I've forgotten now who, but one, of, uh, but somebody introduced a bill that would essentially uh, um, gut uh, Indiana's declared law. Uh, make it illegal uh, or, or, or cause law enforcement not to be able to enforce uh, that law, uh, which didn't get anywhere, thank goodness. Uh, but we were concerned that something like that might come back again this year. But my reading, uh, I haven't really discussed this with anybody, but my reading of Senator Samlin's 295, um, I'll, uh, I'll take just the first sentence or two of the, of the digest, specifies a process for the state to request and, and a court to order release of mental health records uh, of a person alleged to be dangerous, provides that a court that issues a warrant to search for and seize a firearm, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I'm getting into the weeds a little bit. But the point of this, of this is that uh, I read this bill to strengthen Indiana's red flag law by uh, specifying uh, steps through which it should be enforced. Uh, so that comes as kind of a surprise. And uh, if I'm reading it right, it's very positive. So, Jerry, as we, we look at the um, the the session as it's uh, underway now, what are the likelihood that some of these bills, Senate Bill 149 and 429, House Bill 1486, 1400, what are, what are the likelihoods that, that they get passed or maybe that they even make it to committee and not just you know thrown by the wayside? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, the first step is to try our, our very best to make sure that they get uh, hearings uh, uh, before their committee. Uh, several of these, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I guess it's good. I'm not sure. Uh, several of the bills that we've been talking about have been assigned to the Senate's Corrections and Criminal Law Committee, uh, and so uh, we invite uh, uh, the public um, 
uh, to contact the chairman of that committee uh, and to uh, urge that chairman to give those bills hearings. Uh, they're all of the, the uh, uh, Senator Randolph's bill for um, firearms at polling places is, is before the elections uh, subcommittee, uh, different chair. But those are those are places where we ought to, uh, where we hope the public will will weigh in, uh, call that uh, senator's office, uh, leave a message uh, with his uh, his legislative assistant. Uh, I see in both instances they are men, so it was, I guess it was okay that I said his legislative assistant. And uh, and then to uh, check the committee members uh, on those uh, on those committees, and especially if one finds, oh my gosh, my my state senator is in is on that committee, I'm going to give him or her a call, or or I'm going to send them an email. I just, you know, the. Uh, it's important because of the bills that are at hand. We want the we want the public to weigh in on these. Uh, but the other more general thing, and I expect I shared this opinion with you when we talked last June. Indiana legislators believe that they have the ear of the public. Uh, on matters of gun regulation uh, in a way that we think they're not. Okay, so Jerry, so what do you say to gun rights advocates that say advocacy groups like your group, Hoosiers concerned about gun violence, are simply trying to infringe on their Second Amendment rights? Well, we think that um, we think that uh, people who are passionate around uh, the rights for gun ownership uh, are two things. We think they're uh, seriously misreading the Second Amendment. We think the Second Amendment doesn't come close to guaranteeing the kinds of, of unlimited uh, access that uh, that Second, Second Amendment folks think, uh, and uh, we're not alone on that. Uh, uh, legal experts agree with us uh, on that. And then the other, but the other part of it has just gets at what we what we mean to be uh, as a community and as as a humane society. Uh, we um, we just think that when you weigh uh, the uh, horrible outcomes uh, of this unfettered access to guns, uh, when you weigh that against uh, the community's well-being and family's well-being and, goodness gracious, children's well-being, when you weigh those things against uh, the adamant demand that uh, that there should never be any kind of restriction on any kind of firearm, that doesn't even begin to um, balance in our in our view. There's it's just uh, it's just it's just plainly overwhelming uh, that a humane society would take this matter into hands uh, into hand and 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 gain some and put in place some regulations, reasonable regulations. That make us a safer community, safer children, safer homes, more humane society. There's, it's just, it's, it's it, um, infuriating. I think realize that uh, a lot of people see that in such a different, uh, different way than that. Okay, Jerry, so going back to the original reason that we're speaking today, and that is the case of the toddler that was seen on video in Beach Grove, Indiana, playing with a loaded handgun. Given that there are no requirements concerning firearm storage in homes in Indiana, where do you see the case with the father going? Do you think that there will be punishment for the father? Well, this particular uh, case is a little different than than many in that the the uh, uh, the father apparently had a, uh, uh, by virtue of having a, a prior record, uh, was not permitted to have guns in his possession, and so that's a that's a, a point of leverage which which doesn't apply in a lot of cases. So so you know I it's never a good thing when someone goes to jail. That's you know it's just never a good thing. Uh, but uh, but the law I think the community needs to see that this father is being held accountable for his outrageous recklessness. Uh, and so uh, what the law brings brings to bear on him is, is uh, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, but uh, there is some uh, uh, awareness, I think, on the part of the, uh, the public. There was the uh, couple uh, and um, the parents in Michigan uh, who 
just uh, behaved in the most outrageous manner with respect to their 15-year-old son uh, who uh, who uh, brought a gun to school, and, and they had seemed to encourage and condone and and ignore, look the other way, and they have been charged, and they're they're in they're uh, before they're before uh, the, the legal system because of their outrageous negligence, and and um, and but again, I think uh, I think that those stories that we see in the news are the tip of the iceberg, and so we hope that. Um, we hope that the public is is understanding something different about parents' responsibility with respect to guns. Jerry, we're going to leave it there uh, for the conversation, some wonderful information. And uh, my guess is we will uh, probably be following up here in just a, well, couple of weeks it feels like but a couple of months here as the session wraps up to see uh, if, if any of these bills do make it through their legislative yeah. bodies. Yeah. And uh, we appreciate your time as always. Well, I appreciate your reaching out to us. We're glad to we're glad to get these issues out in front of the public. Jerry King is the board president for Hoosiers Concerned About Gun Violence. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us today on Regionally Speaking. All right, thank you so much. How many are familiar with the term brain drain? It sounds scary and in some respect a bit intimidating. Brain drain is simply the export of highly trained and skilled people to other parts of the country or oftentimes other parts of the globe. But what are the effects of brain drain on the state of Indiana and Northwest Indiana in particular? There are a number of studies on brain drain and they all summarize the same thing. Employers in Indiana are finding it increasingly difficult to recruit and retain the workers they need. And while Indiana has more than 50 education and training initiatives designed to deal with this issue, there is no one-stop shop for employers to find potential hires. The Indiana Chamber of Commerce recently released a report called Indiana's Leaking Talent Pipeline. The report determined that the Hoosier State needs to, quote, lift up the educational attainment and work workforce's skills of its citizenry, end quote. So we wanted to talk to a millennial to get their thoughts on brain drain on Indiana. Joining us today is Chris Chung, the senior campaign manager for the State House to White House initiative at the Center for American Progress. As a member of the Indiana House of Representatives, Chris served on the committees for Veterans Affairs and Public Safety, Roads and Transportation, and Financial Institutions, and he was a ranking minority member of the Local Government Committee. Chris holds a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Engineering from Columbia University. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you so much for having me, Dee. Chris, so you're here with us today to talk about brain drain. But before we take a deep dive into that topic, take a moment to tell our listening audience about yourself, about your connection to the region, as well as your work as an elected official representing Northwest Indiana. I was born and raised in Northwest Indiana, and I'm really proud to be from the region, Dee. It's important to me, uh, an issue as, as brain drain, uh, because I'm one of those folks who, uh, through my life, having gone to Munster High School, graduated, and then went to college far away from home in New York City, found jobs in big cities outside of Indiana, uh, and I'm currently based in Washington, D.C., to that effect. Uh, that's something that we don't want to see that happening anymore with our best and brightest. It's a huge problem when the smartest and brightest people from our uh, top-performing high schools in the region find jobs elsewhere and decide to raise their families, start businesses, and buy homes in places other than Northwest Indiana. And as the Chamber of Commerce is saying for the state, it hurts our competitive edge as a state when we don't invest in education, when we don't invest in a public school education that's strong for everybody, and when we don't invest in workforce development for people, whether that's going to college or whether that's doing an apprenticeship with the union or whether that's doing some entrepreneurship and starting your own business. Uh, that's something that is really near and dear to me. And I, I guess it's a little bit of the pot calling the kettle black because I'm one of those folks who left to D.C., but I would certainly welcome any opportunity to support the region. It's just that there's such a, a lack of jobs right now for the highest achieving people. We're speaking with Chris Chung, a former Northwest Indiana legislator, who is presently the Senior Campaign Manager for the Center for American Progress. Chris, welcome back to Northwest Indiana, at least uh, on the airwaves, and uh, great to have you here uh, joining us on Regionally Speaking. And uh, a question, I guess, that I have is, um, your work as a state representative um, for two years, 
is that a is that a topic of conversation that happened at the state house often? Uh, looking at brain drain, were people looking at you as a uh, a younger representative across the state? Maybe at the time the youngest um, in terms of what brain drain means and how to keep uh, how to keep all your friends and your family uh, sticking around in Northwest Indiana. Were those conversations being had regularly at the state house? To an extent, Tom, but I would say not nearly enough to the degree that we should be having this really serious conversation. You can imagine as being one of the very few uh, millennials in the state house. Most of the other folks are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, so the topic just doesn't really appear as much in, in their front of mind and in their day to day. But for you know some of those folks, they see that their kids and their grandkids those folks who the, those who are just going to college and just uh, getting their foothold in the job market, they see how serious of a problem that is. But uh, yeah, to answer your question, it was not nearly a topic of conversation, uh, and it was very underreported to the extent that it, it should have been. So I'm glad we're able to talk about it today and have a really frank discussion. We like to talk about Indiana having a competitive edge as a state because of you know low taxes and a business-friendly environment. But that's not nearly enough, Tom, to keep the young workers from fleeing to big cities and finding bigger and better paychecks elsewhere. Uh, but hopefully we can turn that around in Indiana. So how often are those conversations right now being held uh, in Washington, D.C.? I mean, I know you're not at the Capitol building. Um, you're there as a private citizen. Uh, but, you know, are those regular conversations that are, are, are being held out there to figure out how to stop brain drain in Indiana and Michigan and Illinois? Uh, or are they looking at it in terms of how do we continue to get the, the best and the brightest to come out here? Yeah, I would say as little as the conversation is happening inside the state of Indiana, it's happening even less at the federal level, unfortunately. We would love to see more of our federal representatives, our Indiana members of Congress and the Senate, talking more about the need to retain the highest and, and best talent. And, you know, you can you can pivot to answers like, well, a low taxation environment brings corporations that hire young people if you're a Republican or if you're a Democrat. You talk about investing in quality of life issues. And at this point, it, I think the situation is so dire and desperate, Tom, that it needs to be an all-of-the-above solution. We need to be talking about every single arrow in our quiver that can bring back these young people to Indiana or else we're just simply going to lose our competitive edge. And at the federal level, I think some of the recent massive investments by Congress, you know, finally passing some legislation, uh, for once, it's a pretty rare phenomenon, but there's been a slew of new federal investments in the Chips and Science Act for innovation, uh, that Todd Young helped lead, of course, uh, and then also the Infrastructure Bill and then the Inflation Reduction Act, importantly. When you look closely at the provisions in the in those uh, legislations that are uh, geared towards helping uh, businesses thrive and entrepreneurship thrive, that's really where, uh, if the execution goes right, we can stem some of that brain drain in Indiana, is my hope. Hey, Chris, so let's look at post-secondary education in correlation to brain drain for a moment, right? So as I alluded to in the opening, recently the Indiana Chamber of Commerce released a report that states that only 29% of 18-year-old Hoosiers will finish college and stay in the state. And of that, more than 60,000 post-secondary graduates in Indiana, nearly 40%, will leave within one year of graduation and over half within five years. To me, that's a staggering number of community members to lose that could go toward addressing the state's talent shortages, would you say? I, I would absolutely agree, and I think the solution needs to be kind of twofold, and both uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, have, some, have some good points to this argument that they bring up. First of all, college is way too expensive at this point, and to, to your attrition uh, statistics that you bring up, the, a big part of that is that they simply can't afford this high cost burden and be digging themselves into debt when the economy gets more and more uncertain and when uh, global competition uh, for talent becomes uh, more and more or flattened across uh, across the world internationally. So there's that component on the cost side, uh, and the and then there's the component that you know we have to have a serious conversation about uh, which folks should be going to consider higher education, uh, post secondary education. Which folks should be going into the trades because we have shortages of uh, trades folks and, and union jobs uh, that pay very well. You know they can be um, pretty tough jobs, but you don't need to saddle yourselves with debt all the time. 
Uh, and it doesn't, not everybody needs to go into the professional managerial class. It would be great if everyone could, because, you know, all these young folks like myself would be making six figures pretty easily. And I think our economy would be doing well. But the reality is that there needs to be a, a balanced approach to this. So hopefully, I, I would hope that the Indiana Chamber of Commerce would want to work with some of the organized labor unions in the state to build up these apprenticeship programs, to build up these made in America type of jobs that, that we've lost over the years, but at the same time, bending the cost curve so that you don't have to, you know, ask your parents to take on $250,000 worth of debt to bring, to, to get you into college and, 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 um, and post-secondary education. So it's going to take a, a bipartisan solution and common sense from both sides. I'm Dee Dodson, and he's Tom Maloney, and we're speaking with Chris Chung, a former Northwest Indiana legislator who is presently the senior campaign manager for the Center for American Progress. So on that topic of uh, higher education, we have some pretty fantastic universities, not only here in Indiana, but across the Midwest. I mean, we're, we are riddled with Big Ten schools, Indiana uh, University, Purdue University. Of course, we've got Northwestern over in Chicago. We've got the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. We've got Michigan and Michigan State. We've got Wisconsin. Um, we've got Minnesota and Iowa. And taking you know maybe a, a tier down from the Big Ten. Obviously, we've got uh, we've got we've got Ball State. We've got uh, Valparaiso uh, University right here in our own backyard. And we we've got great local universities with Purdue Northwest, IUN. Uh, a whole host of other universities just over the state line in um, in Chicago. There's a lot of opportunity for higher education. So why is it that kids are getting these degrees in these places that they've grown up? You know, whether they're getting the uh, the full ride, whether they're getting any sort of scholarship help, or they're they're paying their own uh, way. With all the opportunity for higher education, why aren't kids staying? Is it the workforce? Is it the weather? Is it just not wanting to, you know, go back home with mom and dad? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Tom. And I'll say that we shouldn't try to blame it on the weather is one thing. You've got states like Minnesota and that are much colder than ours, uh, but they're growing like crazy because the healthcare industry up there in the Twin Cities is, is, going, uh, is really growing at a rapid clip. So to your point, I think it has to be, a, an, again, a, an, a, all of the above solution that addresses, number one, cost of some of these institutions. Yes, you mentioned that a lot of folks can get in-state tuition, and Purdue, under Mitch Daniels' leadership, has uh, trying to have been uh, bucking the trend of raising tuition costs by keeping them flat, at least, in an inflationary environment, and even prior to this uh, period of high inflation that we're experiencing. So that's a good step, but still, a lot of the time, that shuts out tons of folks from marginalized communities, and if you're from a low-income background, uh, you're still going to be shut out from the support network that you need to actually succeed at a school like Purdue or at IU Bloomington or Notre Dame. And then the second part of that is not only, uh, so the first part is bending the cost curve, and then the second part of that is making the quality of life and uh, small business opportunities that uh, kids need to be able to see themselves um, executing on in Indiana. You know, there's, we make fun of Northern Indiana a lot of times. It's very flat, you know, it's very agrarian. It can be very homogenous sometimes, and it can be an easy punching bag. But for me, at least personally, this will always be my home, and I, and I want to invest in it. And that kind of makes me uh, tied to the region. And, and still, even when I'm far away, I read the uh, local media, and I, I listen to Lakeshore Public Radio because I want to know what's going on in my hometown. Not everyone's like that, but once we help build this quality of life around uh, investments that help walkability and urbanizing some of the uh, de-invested de uh, parts of uh, Northern Lake County and of uh, LaPorte County especially, capitalizing on our lakeshore, getting rid of some of the pollution and some of the industrial waste and creating great nature assets that people can enjoy, creating great healthcare institutions. I mean, we've already got a few and we're, we're steadily climbing up there, but we've still got a long way to go to compete with uh, a Notre Dame graduate who might get a $200,000 job offer to work on Wall Street or someone to, who's going to make that much doing software engineering in Silicon Valley. We've got to really make sure that as Indiana can, goes, we need to be competitive with uh, those coasts and attract venture capital investment, attract big business and small business as well. So again, it all comes down to an all of the above approach at, my, at this point, in my opinion. 
Well, we, we do have the third coast here, right? We've got uh, the five Great right. Lakes, and we, we do have that proximity to Chicago, uh, along with the opportunity, uh, you know, to kind of travel everywhere. The, you know, we've got, we are quite literally in the crossroads of America uh, when it comes to that. But that, that quality of life that you speak of and sort of the, you know, I, I look at it, I guess, more as a... Um, a bird's eye view and I, I look at places like Muncie and Anderson and I look you know I, I went to college in Muncie uh, my dad worked at a factory uh, in Anderson when I was a kid and uh, you know I look at places like Northwest Indiana I look at uh, I look at Gary and I look at Hammond and I look at uh, Michigan City along the lake um, I grew up in Milwaukee before Milwaukee got cool again um, I lived there for a couple of years and it was a it was a it was a rough area and you know if we look at uh, you know what Detroit has gone through over the last several years it's all of these old rust belt towns how do they you know is there some sort of a I don't know is there some sort of an organization working to try to make those towns livable and vi- viable again is it up to the the local folks to reinvest into their communities you know how do you make how do you make the kids want to stay in these old rust belt towns where you know, the only place to get Mexican food is at a Taco Bell. And, you know, the, the, the pizza is the same pizza they've been eating since the 1980s. You know, whereas you look at someplace like Chicago or you look at the Twin Cities or you, you look at the revitalization of a place like Nashville just to the south. It's a little bit warmer and it's a lot cooler and a lot hipper, right? So it's an opportunity there. I think kids are looking at that and seeing those opportunities elsewhere. How do those Rust Belt communities in not only Northwest Indiana, but the rest of the Hoosier State as well, really take a hard look in the mirror and figure out how do we how do we fix this? Yeah, we want to bring in more restaurants. Yeah, we want to bring in some art stuff, and we want to revitalize our downtown. But that costs time. That costs money. And now I'm trying to convince this you know Notre Dame grad to stick around closer to South Bend versus you know going to New York or uh, flying out to L.A. or going down to Texas. Yeah, that's right. And and to your question, there are organizations and nonprofits and foundations and corporations who are, I think, in their own respective ways, trying to address this issue, at least in some part. Because as you're noticing now, after we've had these labor shortages uh, with the COVID pandemic wreaking havoc on the economy, it, it's become a, a, a huge issue across corporate America that they're starting to realize that this uh, labor force issue, uh, it, it comes down to cost, and they've got to step up to the plate, or they're simply not going to be able to have the talent. The flip side of this is that those cities that you mentioned that are growing like crazy, like in Texas and uh, Nashville, um, they're they're suffering under an affordability crisis now, and they're getting priced out under congestion, and, and, and they're starting to suffer a little bit on the quality of life frame. So I don't think Indiana should necessarily try and become the next Nashville or something like that, but we should really lean in to the, uh, the the Rust Belt heritage that we have. There are more domestic investments coming from federal legislation to shore up domestic manufacturing, for instance, and onshoring some of that production. You know, we saw what happens during the COVID pandemic when supply chains all get shipped overseas and all these mega corporations are relying on just-in-time production. Really, that's a really building your economy on a house of cards because if there's one crisis, whether that's railroads being shut down or whether that's China being shut down, you're, you lose a huge portion of that raw material that you need to make things and build things in America. So number one, we should be onshoring production. Number two, the foundations and corporations and nonprofits that are trying in their own small ways to address the, the brain drain issue really need to ban together and create a unified plan for the state of Indiana. And it's going to take some odd bedfellows, Tom, in my opinion, working at the same table to get serious about attracting talent. I'm talking like you're going to get the Chamber of Commerce on one side, and then on the other side, you're going to get organized labor to uh, come together with them with a solution. And likewise, the Chamber needs to uh, listen to organized labor. And you've got to get the school systems, the public and private schools, talking to one another and saying, you know, what can we do? Can we give grants to help uh, young entrepreneurs build downtowns and make them more walkable? Should we find ways to build out mass transit because we find that millennials don't want to own cars? They don't want to live in sleepy suburbs like their uh, uh, boomer parents. They want to live in a dynamic urban core. And increasingly, those boomer parents, as they're becoming empty nesters, also want to live in an urban core and don't want to have to drive everywhere. Uh, so there's there's a lot that can be done, and I think um, the building the built environment and helping onshore some of that production uh, are some small w- and giving uh, competitive grants to some of these new uh, graduates to start businesses and stay in Indiana can really go a long way in helping. But again, we're going to have to see what the next few years brings. 
So, Chris, we have spoken in, in great detail about the correlation between education and Indiana's brain drain. But let's look at some of the other reasons for brain drain. So when news broke out of Indiana's near total ban of abortions, women expressed concern. And that concern could again lead to brain drain. You were once a Democratic member of the Indiana House of Representatives. So what are your thoughts on public policy on Indiana's brain drain? Yeah, well, as you can imagine, Dee, coming from uh, my perspective, my view is simply that some of those laws that have been passed after the overturning of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, some of these state laws like Indiana's have just been too extreme. That's just plain and simple. It's my opinion. Uh, And, you know, take it or leave it. If you're a Republican or Democrat, uh, feel free to disagree with me. But the reality is that corporate America is noticing And I think the result of the last midterm election not being as dire for the Democratic Party as was predicted, Roe versus uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and then the subsequent passage of restrictive state abortion laws like that of Indiana should really be a wake-up call for uh, policymakers across the country that if you want to attract talent, you're going to have to start listening to people and you can't be pushing an ideologue agenda. You have to be pushing policies that appeal to the broad 50% plus one, not this sliver this faction of 10 or 15% of the most vocal, most strident, most activist and ideological uh, members of a faction of, of any constituency. So public policy is going to play a serious role, and not just on abortion, but also the environment, on guns, on public safety, on taxation. You're going to have to come to more consensus solutions, or you're simply put, you're going to be driving millennials and young talent away to different states, period. Chris, uh, before we let you go, I want to thank you for your time today here on Regionally Speaking. But uh, one last question for you. Um, You are a former state representative. And uh, as much as I I love talking with you about things, uh, is there an opportunity for uh, my news team to be reporting on you as a candidate in the the future? No pressure. no, uh, No need to break the news now. But just, you know, wondering between you and I, between you and I. And I. I appreciate that, Tom and Dee. I, that, that's that's really humbling. And, you know, I love public service, and it was probably my favorite uh, and my most favorite learning experience, quite honestly. At this time, I'm really focused on uh, doing the public policy work that uh, I'm doing at the Center for American Progress, while at the same time fighting for Indiana's future. And, and you know, right now, I'm not really itching to get back into uh, political service or, or running another campaign. It's a very stressful and uh, very, uh, it takes a lot of time away from uh, my family and spending time with my friends and uh, my personal life as well. So not at this time, I'll, I'll say, but uh, you know, I like I said, I do love Indiana, and I'd love to keep my finger on the pulse and help support those uh, public leaders and officials who are going to be doing the right thing for the state and addressing the problems we talked about today. I don't think I've ever heard a politician or a former politician uh, say that uh, being in political office was their favorite learning experience, but there's a first time for everything, <laughs> even here on Regionally Speaking. Uh, Chris, next time you're in the region, drop by the studios. We'd love to have you in the building. Chris Chung, the former state representative here in Northwest Indiana. For what district again? 15. District 15. And uh, not running for office anytime soon, but uh, nonetheless, uh, a fantastic conversation and discussion about brain drain, higher education, and the future outlook of Northwest Indiana and the Midwest. Chris, thank you so much for joining us here on Regionally Speaking. Thank you so much, Tom, and thank you so much, Dee. I appreciate it. And that's it for Regionally Speaking for this week. Thanks to our guests, from Hoosiers Concerned About Gun Violence, Board President Jerry King, as well as former Northwest Indiana legislator Chris Chong. And we'll be back with you with an all-new show next Friday.